This is Master Splinter saying, I hope you do not enjoy this podcast by not the two good dudes. Ha <laughs> ha, I made a funny. And welcome to another Shelltastic episode of the Two Crew Dudes podcast. I am one dude, Peter Beckett. And I am another dude, Sean Hunt. And this is a gaming retrospective podcast. Now, we have got a hell of a lot to cover. We're going to. A hell of a lot to cover, did you say? No, I said a hell of a lot, but that's also very appropriate because we are doing this as a two parter on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Or the Hero Turtles, as they're known here. For a time, for a time. And this time we are going to cover from their inception in the 1980s right through to the 1990s. The Ninja Turtles is a classic franchise and we've got a lot to cover like I said. We've got comics, we've got TV shows, we have got merchandise and of course the games. Well we haven't got merchandise yet but when we do, when I get my sharpie and the blank white t-shirts I'm going to create an empire. I'm sure they created an empire when they basically put pen to paper themselves. Cowabunga! 1981, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird met for the first time. Eastman, he was trying to sell his illustrations to a newspaper. They said they didn't want him. They said they didn't want them at all. But they referred him to the one man named Peter Laird who had a similar portfolio of work. They connected quite quickly and were both huge fans of Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby is an absolute legend in the comics field. He's very much well known for being involved with a lot of Marvel properties like X-Men and Doctor Strange along with Steve Ditko and Stan Lee. In 1983, they created Mirage Studios. It got its name because it was actually not a studio, but it was ran out of Laird's living room. Sort of like this studio we have here in my bedroom. It's a fine studio, though. One day, they were developing a comic called Fugatoid, who would later go on to be a character in the Turtles. Remember, he was a character in the Turtles? He was a boss in Turtles at the time. Yes, I do. He was voiced by David Tennant in the 2012 series, Nickelodeon series. David Tennant is a fine actor and very good in Jessica Jones. Shows off his villain chops there. Eastman passed Laird a drawing. It was of a turtle in ninja garb. Upright and guess what he was holding? A ninja weapon of sorts? Nunchucks. Wait, good would guess. that have been censored in Europe? Oh, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. That's coming. That's coming. I know. It's okay. coming. It's coming, man. Just wait. Just oh, sorry, I just can't help myself. It's just just that hold the... your horses, man. I can't hold my horses. I have none. I know the rage is building up. Yeah, it's getting it. We will get there. It's we'll... burning. Burning. So then, Laird did his him one better and drew four of these 
these turtles in ninja garb and masks with a slightly cleaner look or with their own weapons. He then gave them the title ninja Teenage to- Mutant. <laughs> oh, we were supposed to do that at the same All time. All right, cool. Sorry. Do that again, yeah. All right, cool. We will. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was cool. And thus, the Ninja Turtles were born. I can imagine that meeting where he'd handed in the picture of just a Ninja Turtle with nunchucks and he just goes, quadruple that and we've got an idea right here. So he did. And it worked out for the best. The original drawing went for 71 grand, well, nearly 72 grand in May 2012. God damn. They got to work on making the Ninja Turtles comic series, intended on making one originally. Just the one, just to start off with, set your expectations pretty low. Being pretty bummed out by not being able to get their other comic, Gobbledygook, published, the comic would be a parody of franchises such as X-Men, Frank Miller's Daredevil and Ronin, with ties to Daredevil being quite apparent. Very apparent. The fact they're in New York City alone is one of them. Nearly all superheroes are in New York City. Yeah, it is very true actually. It's it's quite a well-policed place really. Spider-Man, Daredevil, Iron Man, Iron Man, The Avengers, pretty much all of them are in New York, so that makes New York an absolute hellhole in that universe. In any universe. I don't know if you knew this. In the first comic of the Turtles, they pretty much imitated well, the origins. way he got his powers. Yeah, so in Daredevil number one, Matt Murdock, who would then become Daredevil, by the way, saves an old man by pushing him out of the way of a speeding truck. As the truck swerves, a canister of radioactive ooze hits Murdock in the head. The contents spill out and blind him, but give him superpowers of massively heightened sense. In the first issue of the Turtles, this scene plays out in the same way, except a canister hits. The boy's head smashes into a bowl of baby turtles, which then fall down an open manhole. There's also other nods to Miller's Daredevil, such as the turtle sensei Splinter, who was named after the Daredevil sensei Stick. So the Foot Clan, clan of ninjas in the turtles, being named after the hand from Daredevil. And X-Men, and pretty much the entire Marvel Universe. Alright, nerd. Yeah, I'm a nerd. The comic was quite dark in tone and also quite violent. The turtles would use their weapons in any way they could. What? It was violent? Yeah, it was really violent. How violent are we talking here? Quite gritty. Quite what? violent. I hate that term gritty when you're talking about violence. It was gritty violence. Well, it's quite dark. Quite gritty. It was just gritty. It just sounds like a horrible road. Or a road that's just about to be snowed on. But yeah, it was. It was quite dark, quite gritty. You had some decapitations. You had some people getting slashed open and things. I'm really surprised by that considering what became of them. They also wore the same red garb and could only be identified by their weapons or if they were called upon by name. Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman originally wanted to use Japanese names for the four turtles seeing as how their master Splinter was a rat from Japan. They said it didn't sound authentic enough though and with the help of a book called Jansen's History of Art went with Renaissance artists instead and thus the names Leonardo, Donatello, Michael Michelangelo and Raphael were given. Later on, the first three issues of the comic would be used as the story for the first movie in 1990 and was mostly true to its material. The origin story of the Turtles and the scene where Raphael meets Casey was pretty much one for one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. One of the good scenes in that film, to be fair. They would first need some money to get this project off the ground, though. You can't just make a comic and publish it out of thin air. They were going the self-publishing route this time. As I said, 
like before they're burned out by the getting the gobbledygook, you know, not published. Of course, so, yeah. So it's going to cost a lot of money in printing and advertising and all that, isn't it? Yeah, man. So Laird had two hundred dollars, two hundred bucks, two hundred dollar dues. He had two hundred dollars in his account. That was all he had, and he emptied it to fund the project. Eastman had a tax return of five hundred dollars, all which went into this. And they would also ask Kevin Eastman's uncle for a loan of one thousand three hundred. After they have worked out their budget for printing costs, they had a little money left for advertising. Nice. Part of the thing that would make them the worldwide success that they are. They had just about enough to put an ad in the Comic Buyer's Guide magazine, which is a trade magazine. Little did they know that this one ad would spread the word quickly. They also ran ads in Gobbledygook as well. They sold all 3,000 copies they had made within weeks. 3,000? Yeah, man, they made 3,000 copies. Oh, that's a big gamble. It is a big gamble. It was really big. No wonder actually. they spent two grand on that. That's a big gamble. I didn't really think about that, actually. They printed off 3,000 copies to sell. Yeah, because imagine if they had an ET situation where it didn't sell. They're left with quite a few thousand copies. Yeah, they wouldn't have to bury it, though. They could reuse the paper. Yeah, They might have been able to, or just had a fat bonfire in the garden. Or a fat bonfire. That would be pretty wasteful. But luckily, it they would weren't... Be. Luckily, though, they weren't... <laughs> wasted <laughs> they weren't wasted as people looked at the paper with their eyes and saw pictures on Sweet. them pictures that were pretty good <laughs> according to <laughs> sentence is so weird because <laughs> as I said they sold all 3,000 copies my brain hurts man <laughs> the demand kept coming and 6,000 more were printed and sold Jeez. this was less of a gamble this time but no, that of course was, not this is hench this is where things are getting serious things now. are starting to kick off yeah mate the success led them to create more and with that success a few more people were hired yeah. it wouldn't be long before toy makers and the like would be knocking on their door was trying to get a slice. How many toy See makers? What I did were, there. Yeah, you I, missed that. You missed my oh, pizza pun. Oh right, sorry. Yeah, I missed a slice of pie there. <laughs> oh man, but it's annoying you know, that your your casual pun made me laugh more than my pun. But. Pizza time. Deal was first made with Palladium to make a tabletop RPG. Oh boy, this is a fun one to talk about. Well, you've played this, so yes, I have. So we're not going to talk about it in too much detail if you want to find more of the details out go and listen to the tabletop twats episode on it we'll leave a link in the show notes yeah it's a really good show all about tabletop rpgs it had a fair bit of controversy but we'll let you hear that from them they had this deal with palladium who else was knocking about at this time nobody really no dark what? horse came a knocking as well oh nice big comic book makers and leading in action figures and they made some really cool lead miniatures lead they used to make lead miniatures back in the day and they look really cool <laughs> bit too much poisoning for my liking to bit too much poisoning bit too heavy they don't really make them anymore they're really cool you should go and have a look online if you can have a look at them they're really cool they looking. Are. so one other person would come and knock in though who's there at the door it's playmates toys oh they're just getting into the action figure market as they were making babies they were making babies but not in the way that you think they were making babies in another way plastic babies they were in the doll market but they saw this lucrative action figure market and they saw the turtles comic and they were like nah this is too violent man peter led and kevin eastman like well what do you want us to do what do you want us to do and then playmates toys were like well if you want us to sell action figures for this series 
series, you're going to have to make a cartoon first. Viable idea. Good option. And so they did. Yeah, I can understand why it's a bit too violent to make action figures for us. Decapitation is involved. Not every kid's going to want to play with something like that, are they? They won't even get to see it. They went about making a kid-friendly cartoon. The cartoon that you remember, everyone who's over 25 remembers, probably under 25 as well. A lot of people remember this cartoon. Well, it's just an important part of animation history in general, isn't it? It really is. Many writers were bought on by Mirage Studio to make a more kid-friendly cartoon so that toys could be sold, although they took most of their inspiration from the comic book likeness because the toys didn't have pupils, did they? I don't believe they did, no. And they always had these angry faces. Too many angry faces. Also, they leased out animating company Murakami Wolf Svensson, and this is their most notable work to this day. A lot of phrases such as turtle power and pizza time were thought up in the early days of the cartoon's inception and was much lighter in tone compared to the comic books. Five episode miniseries was aired, but it took three showings before it gained an audience. Once it did, however, it was picked up for a series by CBS and shown all around the world. And that's how we got our chance to have a look at it, which is great. I had a question. I'm not sure if you know. Why pizza? Why was it pizza that it was so infatuated with? Peter Laird said he was quite annoyed with that too because it was never in the comics. It was only in the series. Yeah, I never remembered it being in the comics until obviously after this show was aired and then it became a massive staple of the Turtles as characters. I imagine that it's because it's something American and Western. Oh, and synonymous of New York is their giant pizza slices. So that and could New have been York something to do well. with it. I think mainly because it's set in New York and New York's known for their delicious pizza. Actually, the five-part miniseries, that was actually really good. It's actually a lot darker than the rest of the series. Yeah, they decided to go a lot lighter in tone, didn't they? And I mean, a lot lighter. Yeah, it was really, really goofy. The turtles were a lot stupider. Yeah, the so. goofiness sort of bled into the rest of the turtles from then on didn't it terminate the turtles we here in the UK though we got a heavily censored version oh now we get to talk about it of the already kid friendly show yeah we finally get to talk about it well, you've been waiting for a long time already annoying enough is that they were called hero turtles they were called hero turtles because the word ninja was deemed offensive oh my god how is ninja offensive because it had to do with laws here protecting children from easily obtainable weapons so ninjas had weapons yeah of of course they did. Now, I have a question for you. Can we now ban the word ninja again, please? No, we can't ban the word ninja again because... Oh, that means we can't ban the streamer ninja. No, we can't ban the streamer ninja to answer your question. A lot of parts of the show had to be redubbed. The word ninja being taken out of certain parts when it was spoken or when it was seen on the screen. Was this just in the UK or was this Europe-wide? Some parts of Europe had it, some didn't. Some used the hero turtles name but not the censored version whereas some didn't at all some used both things so some used the name and the censored version who did that who had an uncensored ninja turtles island that's the only you one you lucky bastards lucky the irish i guess yeah lucky. i guess so the opening cinematic was completely different over here as well with the lyrics being changed all the sequences being changed lyrics like splinter taught us to be ninja teams was changed to splinter 
Splinter taught us to be fighting teams. Speaking of the opening cinematic and the theme tune, the very yep. famous theme tune, the guy who wrote Big Bang Theory, he was the guy who sung this. I suppose that's a redeeming enough quality in its own right, but you still did Two and a Half Men, so you're kind of forgiven for Big Bang Theory. Two and a Half Men doesn't go unnoticed. Terrible show. Even Charlie Sheen wanted the hell off of there and had to get killed off of it. Turtle Soup, my favourite. Mikey's nunchucks were seen as the biggest problem, however, plainly in the first episode, when the turtles are being introduced and it shows off their weapon skills, it gets to Mike and it just does a close-up shot of his face. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I always remembered that. I laughed so hard at that as a kid. Didn't realise that it was actually a censored version, but... I didn't even notice, to be honest. No, I just thought it was funny. They're showing off their sweet skills and it's just his face just standing there, emotionless. But they did get around the problem with Mike by giving him a grappling hook in later seasons. That didn't come till season three, though, right? No. That's quite late. That's a sense of two whole seasons before they they thought of an idea that they could actually get away with. They even thought that him using sausages in the movie was offensive the second movie we will talk more about that later because that is quite funny to be fair yeah we got the censored version over here where we didn't even see him basically using sausages like nunchucks series ran for 10 years 10 years well nine years actually nine years nine times nine times nice that's a good amount of seasons, I guess. So it ran for 10 years and then came Turtles The Next Mutation, which was another universe and it only ran for one season. It bombed. It bombed really badly. How badly? Very badly. But now we're going to go on to talk about the 1990 film. Probably the most interesting out of all the films in terms of its production and all this sort of thing. I'd imagine it had quite an interesting schedule of events leading up to the making of this film. Oh yeah, definitely, because there was a lot of stuff that hadn't been done before. There was people telling they were crazy and shit for making this sort of thing. Oh, of course they were. They were absolutely mental to think they could try and pull this off very well. Which they did. They may have done. Well, if you don't know by now... Yeah, it's been a long time since this film... (laughs) came out so yeah you probably i think most of the internet has pretty much reviewed these movies we're no different pizza power teenage mutant ninja turtle comic book i caught the eye of a surfer named gary proper gary proper yeah man he was a proper good surfer isn't it he was a road manager to a comedian at the time he teamed up with a producer kim dawson and went to peter laird and eastman and though it took a bit of convincing they got the live action rights how long did it take them to negotiate this a few months normal for it to be around about a few months for negotiations to happen because you've got to negotiate the rights of certain characters and artistic licenses but the old cash in a suitcase under the table sort of things well no exactly 
Maybe. You know how Hollywood works. Yeah, it's always cash under the table. It's always cash under the table. It's always drugs over the table. Wise man say, forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for late pizza. They brought on an ex-comic writer and up-and-coming screenwriter, Bobby Hairbeck, to write the script. What's up with these awesome names today? I know, really good names. Great names. He and Dawson went to every major studio at the time trying to get a deal and being turned down by every single one of them. Of course. All saying it was too much of a risk as a live-action cartoon adaptation was risky business. Yes, it was. It wasn't very well known of at this point to be able to do something like that. No, not really, and... Although people did try, there was a couple of years before, there was the He-Man live-action film, which tanked really, really badly. Very bad. Kim Kim Dawson is quoted as saying, Gary and I made the rounds to virtually every studio in Hollywood. I had worked at Showtime, and one of my first calls was to Peter Chernin, who went on to run Fox for a long time. But Peter goes... Are you guys out of your minds? Howard the Duck was just released. Nobody felt like a comic book could be converted into a live-action character. Oh, look at how wrong they were nowadays. Yeah, I know. Look at his Marvel shit going on. Look at his DC shit. Oh, sorry, DC. In the end, the film would go on to be a massive success. Because, of course, because it's a winning formula. Yeah, whereas Howard the Duck... Tanked. Bad time for that sort of thing. It, it was a pretty coked up time. It was actually the highest grossing independent movie until nine years later in 1999 when Blair Witch was released and made 140 million. This made 135 million. Good pretty return, amazing. actually. What was the budget? 13.5 million. Wow. They really did use their budget well, I think. 13.5 million 135 million gross you said yeah yes really good good profit didn't probably why the sequel got commissioned very quickly afterwards and also they didn't have to hire Van Damme so it was a lot cheaper than, oh yeah that than was... Street Fighter because... yeah we found that out about Street Fighter didn't we how much that guy got paid maybe they should have given it more to Raul Julia yeah mate definitely 100% Kawabanga! Bobby Herbeck, who was writing as a scriptwriter for independent studio Golden Harvest at the time, thought this would be perfect for them. He went to head of production Tom Gray, who bluntly told him he didn't want anything to do with it. But Herbeck persisted for a few months and told him Kim Dawson wanted to meet, and she said, Just kinda clicked. Steve Barron was then <laughs> brought on to direct, and though Eastman had his doubts, he was quickly convinced after Barron read some of the comics and in particular cited issues 1 and 10 and said that it was their story. Oh, okay. 1 and 10. Yeah, mate. So basically, the origins and halfway through. Yeah. Yeah, probably where all the good action is. That's a good point, actually. That's fair. They would have been setting up some stuff in the comics for quite a long time, and that's probably where it all came to a head. The film was actually closely based on the story of the first three issues, with some scenes mimicking the comic book perfectly. Such as, what I said before, Raph meets Casey Jones. It retained some of the grittiness of the comics, but added certain things from the series, such as the goofy jokes, comic use of weapons, and their love of pizza. Pizza Heart were running promotions for the film at the time, but it's kind of weird, because in the film, Domino's Pizza is advertised, and there's a huge advertisement for them that takes up the entire screen when the pizza box is handed down to the turtles in the sewer. Do you reckon that's because they were trying to work a deal with Domino's? 
dominoes at the time and they'd already filmed that scene so didn't want to change it in post I don't know actually I don't know why that's the case it's really weird but I never actually found out I imagine that probably is right though ever since then Pizza Hut have had a massive thing with Ninja Turtles every time a film comes out they always have a promotion every time a film comes out or a new series comes out they're straight on it they are always and they always have their deals like 24 pounds for a pizza and bear food and tiny bit of coke and maybe a garlic bread if you're lucky hopefully it won't come burnt because pizza hut is shit (laughs) (laughs) especially the one near us jesus i got food poisoning off my pizza hut near me we both did oh it was horrible domino's is no better to be fair though we don't have our expectations held that high when we're going to pizza hut we're just buying some food we just want to eat right now pizza dudes got 30 seconds the next step was adapting the likeness of the turtles to live action i'd imagine that would be a pretty difficult process yeah because they needed a lot of goddamn money for this of course they did Baron suggested going to Jim Henson. Jim Henson? Yeah. Good the, choice. See Jim Henson of Muppets fame. And everyone loves the Muppets. Apart from that show that came out on Sky One a couple of years ago. That was awful. I don't think he had anything to do with that. No, he didn't. He's been dead for about 26 years. Tom Gray said they would not be able to afford him. At the time, budget was steeply rising. Baron went to Henson and showed him the comics and he thought they were a bit violent. Of course, because everyone has that same complaint. Not everyone. Most people seem to have that complaint. No, just people who are making toys for five-year-olds and people who make shows for five-year-olds. The next play by them was showing the comics, which I said earlier, and Jim Henson did say they were a bit violent, but Baron said the movie would come from a good place. Like, what good place? There aren't many good places. If we're talking about the mean streets of New York, that ain't a good place. No, it's not a good place, but I mean, the film had heart. I know what you meant. I was just making bad New York references. But New York streets are mean. Jim Henson did actually say the film was still too violent in the end. Really? Yeah. I don't think it was. He was happy with his work on it and the sequel. A lot of parents actually did complain at the time about it being violent. They did. But it wasn't really actually... No, it wasn't. It was so tame. But this was 1990. Everyone was scared of everything. Everything was violent. That sounds like today, though. Yeah. History repeats. Yeah, it does. It's since. It was a similar time. It was a similar time. People were getting offended by everything. Whereas you look at the early 80s, no one got offended by anything. Everyone smokes as well. Cricket? Nobody understands cricket. You gotta know what a crumpet is to understand cricket. The suits Jim Henson made were the most advanced things he'd actually made to this date. And they are pretty damn good, to be fair. Two were made. One for live action sequences and one for all the dialogue heavy bits had radio controlled motors for all the facial expressions oh yeah i can understand that being quite awkward they did a good job with it to be fair. mostly mostly yeah it's pretty tough job though equipment in the shell along with the cooling stuff cooling stuff yeah all the coolant and all that oh okay yeah yeah it was all linked up in the shell it was all in the shell it was all in the shell mate nice the actors inside the costumes were said to have lost 20 pounds while wearing the suits as they were so bulky and most of the film was shot in Carolina where at the time it was sweltering heat. Oh, those suits must have stank at the end of the day. There are actually Ugh. pictures of the actors in the suits. Really? When you wake up on a hot day, they look like that. It's really bad. They look really, really tired. Oh, God. Yeah, there's pictures of them all online. They've got half of their suit taken off the top half and it's just them posing for a 
picture. Just in between takes where they can actually take the top half off. Yeah, and they're just sweaty and red-faced and all that. It must have been tiring work for them, tiring. Imagine getting caught in a fan picture after you've just filmed this gruelling scene in the middle of sweltering North Carolina heat. It looks like it was an organised picture. Press photo, basically, or something. Yeah, done in official capacity. Yeah, but still, like, that must be horrible. It was You look like a disastrous mess. You don't want to be having a camera thrown in your face like that. They didn't really actually use these pictures in promotional art. What's the point of them, then? I've got to document the whole process. No, it wasn't that. They were actually going to use the actors inside the toes. They were actually going to use them for promotional stuff. Don't you think it would look a bit weird on the movie poster, just half a turtle and half a man? No, no, because they were meant to go on talk shows and stuff Ah, like that. Ah, I see. talk to people. Just get them to go out in the Ninja Turtles garb. They didn't want to ruin the illusion. Yeah, they should have just done that. That would have been funny. Yeah, a lot of the promotion done after the film was produced was done without the actors who played the turtles. But like you said, it is a bit weird. Why didn't they just bowl about in the actual turtles costumes? The actors who played the turtles, I'm going to list them here. They deserve some recognition. So we've got David Foreman, Leif Tilden, Mikalan Sidsi and Josh Pay. The strategy was not to ruin the illusion. Though while on the beach one day, Josh Pay and Leif Tilden spied an eager child wearing a turtle's towel as a cape and pretending to be them. He came into the vicinity of Pay and Tilden and Pay said, Hey, I was Raphael and he was Donatello in the movie. The kid's face dropped and he ran off crying to his mother. Pretty much ruined a fan's life. Yeah. Man. I know his intention there is good, but... Yikes. Oh dear. He made a bad. He was expecting the kid to go, ah, cool, but nah. Master Splinter was also no slouch either, as he had to be controlled by three puppeteers, and in scenes where he would cry, his tears were made out of a weird chemical which would burn through his skin. What? Yeah, it would burn through his skin, and Henson would get annoyed, but Baron said... He needed to cry a bit more in order to make his emotions more believable. And it was worth the burning of several splinter puppets, I think. Yeah, it kind of sounds like it, really. Production wrapped at the end of September 1989. A group of children in Las Vegas were shown the film as a test audience just before the film was released. And the response was massively positive. Hmm. Good. They didn't expect the film to be such a massive hit, saying that 7 million on opening weekend would have been an amazing feat. There were lines around the block for two weekends. Jesus. Kevin Eastman said, For an independent film, it was beyond our wildest hopes. We liked the final movie, and we hoped people would like it. And the fact it did as well as it did was fantastic. All the versions of the Turtles have been optioned over the past 30 years now, and certainly in the entertainment arena, the first movie stands out as our hands down favourite version. Okay. Yeah, that's all I have on the story of the 1990s film. Oh, As pretty... usual, very interesting. Yeah, it seems really interesting, actually. Got some good f- nuggets of information in there. Quite surprised at how long it took to develop, actually. I know, man. Probably a pioneering film at the time, I think. Yeah, I think so. In, in many ways. Well, the fact that I had Jim Henson on, on board doing the suits was a great feat for them, and I can't think of anyone better to have on that, really. No, exactly. And being that it was his best work says a lot as well probably his most technical and best work that he ever did yeah for sure 
and I would probably agree is some great work. So as you know, if you've listened to us before, we generally take some notes during the film, and today is no different, but we've taken notes for all three films, but we're going to cover the first one first, of course. Because so, it's first, is that why? No, I thought we'd go in reverse order, and then flip it up and go back to the first. <laughs> I'm really confused, but it seems like you got a good plan. To start off with, we have those very, very typical shots of New York. God, I wish movies would just stop doing this. They need to have that, though. Yeah, but they don't. Everybody knows what New York looks like. Choose somewhere else in New York, but also the trope of putting New York up or wherever on the screen also is quite annoying as well. So I prefer New York City to what we got in the second one, which was everybody eating pizza. Good point. I'll take that. Or we hear, in fact, that there is a news report going on for April over the top of these shots of New York City, like the Empire State Building and the Statue of Liberty, you know the drill. Now, we see someone get mugged, they just get a wallet randomly stolen off them, and then it suddenly just gets passed throughout all these underlings in New York, weirdly enough. Like, how does this wallet make so much distance in two minutes? I'll tell you why. It's because there's a gang being run by the Shredder. Yep. And that's our story. Exactly. And he is the last thing that you see before the wallet goes missing. You see an arm with the spikes on it, and we all know who that is. But obviously at the time, we didn't know who this was. Kind who was of. it? Was it the Shredder? It is Shredder. Whoa. Shredder. So we get some exposition next. Obviously, like I said, the news report was going on, and that's still going on. So we get April O'Neil's introduction as a news reporter. She is actually hosting the news that night and talking about the Foot Clan, which is what these guys were that we saw mugging someone for their wallet. One of the interesting things that I find about this movie actually, which I wanted to talk to you about, is how long it takes to actually see the turtles. It's quite a while, isn't it? There's quite a while, but it's really well done. It's perfectly done. After we get this news report, we get rumblings in a dark New York street. Something is afoot and then complete darkness some guys get taken out and then the Ninja Turtles logo shows up and you still haven't seen them it sets this ominous presence of these unseen vigilantes taking criminals down and it sets a real atmosphere it's brilliant actually yeah you see their shadows the credits have rolled we still haven't seen them and a bam straight afterwards we see them walking back to their hideout then as they get back Splinter obviously wants to teach them some wise words about the ninja lifestyle and he gives them the art of ninja speech the art of being a ninja just after they've got back from apprehending those bad guys and then they want to come back and eat. And they chomp down on pizza. Well, I'm getting to that. They actually order the pizza just as they get back and specifically with no anchovies. Yeah, because they don't they famously don't like anchovies. (laughs) Give me that! Just a little bit after this, we get the domino shot because the driver tries to... Yeah, but just before this, here's a fact. Michelangelo is ordering the pizza on the phone. Yeah, Over good. here, we didn't see that. We saw him in complete darkness ordering pizza on the phone because they used a darker shot so oh, we couldn't see his yeah. nunchucks. Yep, good point. We watched the American version because we wanted that uncensored goodness. They get a Domino's ad for when they drop the box down. They drop it down into a sewer. That's not weird enough as is. But just before that, we get 
a good old dance number. The tequila. It was a bit shit. It was actually the worst part of the film. It really was. It was definitely appealing to those five-year-olds who know about tequila. Which is none of them. Exactly. So weird. Just after they get their pizza delivery, I think they're going to apprehend some thugs and we get a cut-off of a figure, mysterious figure, by the name of Casey Jones. And he fights Raph for the first time. In this movie, Casey Jones is probably the best Casey Jones there's ever been. It's great Casey Jones, to be fair. It's the character right on point. Yeah, a lot of fans really liked him and really dug him, but parents did not dig him. They said he was not a good role model because he was bashing people with hockey sticks. Oh, no, he's bashing people with hockey sticks. These people who are bad and he's protecting their city. You don't really want to teach kids to bash criminals with hockey sticks. So after the fact that Raph has fought Casey, I think he loses, doesn't he, to Casey? Or they go toe for toe for a while and they back down. But he goes back to Splinter. It's quite difficult to see a few things. It can be quite annoying. This does have a little bit of a problem here and there and things do get a little bit dark no, in certain scenes. It's not that. It's just that they went for... It was the 90s, so everything had to be dark. It's a bit too dark to see. And he gives him a speech about the importance of family. And then he storms off in a half all by himself again. Real important lesson about family there. So next we get quite a good introduction to April. We see her producer come round for a meeting because she never seems to get off the clock at all. And this producer brings his son round who tries to rob April. Now he's going to be quite important later on in the film, isn't that right? Who's this again? It's the kid. The kid of the producer at the news station. Oh, him. Turns out to be a Foot Clan member. That's the one. Yeah, I forgot about him. Yeah, he turns out to be quite important later on. So take note, he stole April's purse. What an idiot. Or not, but you can if you want. But yeah. we'll probably tell you later on. Remember yeah. that time where he stole April's purse? Oh, well, yeah. Well, here it comes again. Oh, it might do. <laughs> Next up, we get April. What I can remember was that April defied orders from this producer who told her not to keep mentioning about the Foot Clan because nobody wants to hear about the Foot Clan. Everyone believes it to be a myth. Here's the thing, right? Because kids are doing the crimes, nobody believes that they're actually crimes, even though the kids are doing the crimes and people can blatantly see them doing the crimes. They do not think it is organised crime because, oh, it's just stupid kids. Oh, no, the kids can't organise themselves because they're only kids. They're like, like fat stogies and shit. Smoking um, a hedge cigar. Yeah, man. But that's quite funny, though. It's ridiculous. It's weird as hell. We get April talking about this, and what do you know? The Shredder just so happens to be watching that, and he punches the TV in a rage once the Foot Clan's mentioned. Might have a bit of an anger issue there. He was done quite well in this film. Yeah, Shredder, he was. Think, he was. It was, a, it was a good balance. They had a couple of goofy moments with the Shredder, but he wasn't like in the 1987 series. He was a bumbling bloody moron in that show got him a bit of justice in this movie to be fair it was well acted as well but it they was did, they did change the actor after the first one. Oh, they did yeah i've got written down here because i want you to see if you remember this 107 a new record no i don't remember i don't is it remember. something to do with a pizza slice like eating a pizza slice oh no he he slices up a pizza yeah he chops it up with his swords doesn't he yeah leonardo chops a pizza up as it gets delivered yeah, he throws it up and chops it. If they haven't cut the pizza, I, I would be annoyed. Yeah, pizza, sort it out. Sort it out, mate! Anyway, we get another scene where April is now being followed by some Foot Clan members, some kids, and they go to attack her, and she fights back. But then Raph just so happens to save her because he's 
stormed off in a half earlier and just so happens to run upon her. All convenience. It's fine. We have to sort of move the plot along somehow, don't we? And I think this is quite serviceable. It does a job. Keep practicing. At this time, April O'Neil wakes up and then Splinter explains what's going on after she gets shocked about them being turtles and ting. Because that's not weird enough that a giant rat's going to come and talk to you about why anthropomorphic turtles are standing there talking to you about, oh, are you okay, dude? And then we get the origin story. Yes, we do. That is a very cool origin story. Yeah, how he gets some of his ear chopped off, how he lives in a cage for most of his life. How he trained under his... His master without his master knowing because he's just a rat in a cage. He did it to take revenge on the Stredder who killed his master. It was good. Well, the next thing that happens is the Foot Clan somehow seem to find out about the Turtles' hiding place. They followed April, didn't they? I think they did. Yeah, they followed her after she came back from her apartment and went to go and see them and yeah. Oh yeah, that's where their lair gets compromised. And yes, then, it does. And, and then they, they have to stay at April's for a bit. Yeah, they have a sick fight in the subway system, basically. And it's all a bit intense. Yeah, that fight yeah. was good, actually. Yeah, good fight, good fight. They have to stay April's, and then that's a bit inconvenient for them. Yes, it is so inconvenient for her. But there was one thing that I wrote down that I thought was quite funny. She said, I haven't got anything in to eat. How does frozen pizza sound? And then they're like, whoa, you got pizza? Frozen pizza? In New York. Go and get it fresh. It's better fresh. <laughs> Splinter goes missing, so he is captured by the Shredder and the Foot Clan, and this is where we get a look into the lair of the Foot Clan, and like you said before, it's where we get the awesome shot of a kid smoking a fat stogie. Yeah, this is weird, because you get all, in the background you have that song, it's going to be trouble and burst your bubble, and, and then all these kids are playing pool and dealing drugs and playing cards. And, and pool and drinking. And smoking cigars, and this is basically the Foot Clan of this movie, is that Shredder has got all these kids doing his dirty work yeah yeah it's a good atmospheric scene actually showing the absolute debauchery of this warehouse that they've turned into a lair it's like it's got a really dingy arcade in there a pop-up skate park loads of vending machines with sodas in it it's just really weird isn't it it's the most 90s warehouse you'll ever see because you can't help but show a bad guy doing bad things all the time gives the audience a reason to care about this but this is where we get a look into Master Shredder's right-hand man. We get something quite weird here. The Shredder lines them all up, wants to know why April isn't dead yet, and some kid gets a little bit out of hand and he kicks him square in the face. Just a kid, and he kicks him in the face gotta learn somewhere, mate. We are a proper introduction to the Shredder here, and the costume's damn cool. Major League butt kicking is back in town. Oh yeah! So we find out once again that there is some sort of media cover-up with the Foot Clan. They don't want to talk about it at all. It is a bit weird. April kind of gets fired for this because she's been told not to do stuff about the Foot Clan and she does it anyway, so she gets fired. We have another fight between Raph and the Foot Clan and I think Raph gets his ass handed to him a little bit. Fights are good in this. They're pretty good. They are good, yes. I wrote down that they are pretty good. I thought that was useful to note that actually they are well choreographed. They are actually quite well choreographed. 
aircraft and also you can actually see what's going on and the camera work is good the shots are good in this film anyway and this is where we have another good one liner we have it where Raph has beaten one of these guys and they start to run off it says that he'll probably be back in a minute and then he'll come billowing through the roof and then the next scene we have we've got some nunchuck skills going on so Mikey and one of the foot clans are sort of going toe to toe with nunchucks just showing off the skills now we would never have seen this in Europe we wouldn't have because they were just swinging nunchucks about for five minutes actually it was very impressive especially knowing that these guys were in those suits doing that yeah actually. I think that's the most impressive part about it to be fair without the suits though that would still, still be- impressive yeah once again some classic one liners as you probably would come to expect from the Ninja Turtles at this point especially after the crossover of the grittiness of the comics and the goofiness of the animated show this might come as a blow as a phone falls on someone's head is kind of a standout one this is a very big trope of 80s movies despite this coming out in 1990 it was clearly filmed in the 80s you got a training montage yeah the four turtles get trained April O'Neil at this point does not get trained or in any of the films she's actually quite incompetent in all three of these goddamn movies which is quite annoying the turtles do get some much needed training from Splinter at this point set to some really really cheesy music got a communication with Splinter by telepathy the turtles are well versed in meditation actually in fact we do see Leo meditating at some point during this movie so yeah at one point we see Leo meditating they have been known to do that but he manages to have a conversation with Splinter via telepathy yeah it's not been done in the film or talked about in this film before but But he just so manages to do it and then you could have set that up a bit better I think it was not done very well but oh well there aren't many moments where that happens we basically have it where they're communicating with Splinter and then they find out their whereabouts from a kid called Danny Danny the kid that got caught robbing April at the beginning of the film is now key because he now gets a name they're having this communication and then Danny flies into her apartment just before that there is a pizza that's gone awry and they have a funeral for the pizza what? I don't remember this they have a funeral for a pizza is it because they ate it? no because I think it went bad I think April must have eaten a pizza or something but didn't eat it all and there's a slice there that's horrible and mouldy and they have a funeral for it it's dumb that's why I wrote it down on the sheet this might overtake the stupid dance number at the beginning where the turtles are dancing to tequila my god it was bad I don't know why they had this funeral R.I.P. pizza meditating. We get Shredder's backstory as told by Splinter and that Splinter obviously learned his kung fu in a cage. Not long after this, because April's apartment had been compromised, they went back to the turtle hideout and they get ambushed again. But they managed to fight their way through. We get a weird line here where Casey hits someone with a golf club. Why does he have a golf club? He uses all different kinds of sports weapons. Oh, he does, So yes. he has to fill the quota of different bats and clubs for some reason. So he gets a driver. So he smacks someone with this and they fly across the room, which is awesome. He shouts four as he does it, which is customary for golf. He then says that he's never going to call golf a boring sport again. Doesn't he hit someone with a cricket bat later and then he says that's not cricket or something? I can't remember. Yes, he does actually. He hits someone with a cricket bat. He says six. That's six runs. So lastly, we've got the final encounter with the Shredder, which is done on a rooftop. And this is a cool fight, to be 
be fair. No, it's not. What, all four turtles against Shredder? It's actually not a bad fight. It was quite a bad fight. Number one, because the turtles don't land a single hit on the goddamn Shredder. And number two, I mean, it does look cool in certain That's places. what I meant. It looks cool. But it's not actually a good fight because number one, the turtles don't land any hits. And number two, Casey kills him with a single flip of a switch. Although when Shredder falls, it does look cool. He falls into a pile of garbage and then he gets eaten by the garbage monster, aka the garbage dumpster. Yes. And he's quite clearly killed because you can see his helmet getting crunched up and stuff. He's pretty dead. Casey Jones manages to knock him off. He falls into a dumpster. He gets he gets clearly killed. Danny just so happens to go run back to his dad and his dad's been worried hell about him and they make up and it's some big thing that's gone throughout the whole of the film and it's kind of boring. No one cares. And then we get this random groveling to April. We need you back. Oh, boring. No one cares. Turn, click, switch, off. Yeah, so they basically rehire April because she was right all along, which they should have done. Yep. She gets rehired. She gets paid extra cash. She gets her own office and everything's all right. And don't they go and party down in April's house after They this? do, actually. And this is where we get the classic cow bunga line and Casey kissing April. They that were quite good thing. for each other, actually. Yeah, I they think. were. And then we get the most infamous moment in the entire film. The one that's spoken about on all those classic internet videos. Aha, I made are funny. Yeah, doesn't Splinter just say Cowabunga? Yes, he does. It's not really a joke. He's just saying Cowabunga. Yes, and he made a funny. I suppose it is funny in a way because he wouldn't usually say Cowabunga. No, he wouldn't. But even as I'm saying it now, it's powerfully unfunny. It is very powerfully unfunny. That's the that end is the, the last bit of the movie. They're all laughing and he says, I made a funny. And the credits roll and there's a song with some massively heavy snares. There usually was in those. Because of, movies. because of course there was because it's all about the heavy snare so all right. Peter give us a summary oh god god uh, I know god. you don't like summaries but you know actually no I'm not even gonna we're not doing a summary no I'm doing a summary right, here's my I'm review. doing the a film, summary the film was good and it was a good film well you're doing a summary then the film was good alright so doing I, a summary then no basically I'm not doing a summary what well I'm that's doing, a summary here's my summary not a summary here's a summary summary but here's my review of the film the film is quite good it manages to be dark like the comics it manages to keep a good tone it's also quite funny it's also it's probably the perfect turtles movie i'd say i'd agree with that there is probably not enough the turtles versus the shredder no there's not at all that's they the should only have had a little bit more of that that's the only thing i probably would have made this film a bit longer had a bit more of that in there a bit more excitement that's probably about it really i think they just wanted to come in at the hour and a half mark at this point though didn't they well it's a kids movie and Exactly. Hour and a half. See a film, it's an hour and a half, you're in. Especially if you're five years old, man. Exactly. So that's the first movie. In my summary, to be honest. Yeah, it's not a bad movie. I just gave a summary. No, I've meant mine. Alright, Peter, what's your thoughts on the movie? Not a summary, but your thoughts. It's not a bad movie. It's it's aged quite well, to be fair. Somebody Jim Henson's work is clear to see that it has aged quite well. Most of the actors are giving top-notch performances, and like you said, it's goofy, but it's also very gritty, and yeah, it's good 
good representation of the Turtles, I think. Yeah, it has aged pretty well as well, apart from yeah. obviously the soundtrack. Some of it's aged badly. The Turtles themselves, for a live-action Turtles movie, it's aged really well. Yes. Go and watch it. I would recommend it, and so would you, right? I'd give this a seven and a half, to be fair. No scores. I'd give it a seven and a half. Stop that. But that's the first movie. 7.5. First movie done. Moving on to the second. The Secret of the Ooze. I made a funny. Next up, we've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze, the 1991 sequel to the smash hit. Now, Sean, hit us with some facts, mate. Well, I've got some stories. This is a sequel to the first film, as you just said. Yeah, you did say that. But they go back to the origin story. We get to find out where the Ninja Turtles got their powers and shit. I thought we already did. Didn't Master Splinter already explain that in the first film? He explained his origins in the first film. Oh, yeah, he did to explain the other turtles' origins. Not in full depth, but did explain a little bit about them. But we get to see a bit more about this. Shredder comes bursting in and... What? 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 Whoa. Whoa. Hold the phone here. You can't... Whoa. We actually watched the movie. I know. The Shredder is dead. The Shredder is dead. We will get into that later and how he is alive after being compacted in a dust cart. Yeah, mate. Known as a dumpster, usually. thinking the franchise would die off soon and were surprised about how long it had lasted at this point. It was about 10 years by this point, actually. No, no, no. You said it was 84, their inception? Yes. Yeah, it's only seven years at this point. It's about seven years. Little do they know it's still going and it's still a major hulking franchise. Well, also, they just had a major success with the first film. And they just had a massive success with the first film. You're right, the film was a smash hit, the first one. Oh, mate, it was a massive indie title at the time and it went on to make big box office office numbers it's crazy and the budget here was absolutely massive it was a lot larger than the first film budget for this film was slightly more than double this time we had 25 million whoa playing around with a bit more money this time what did they churn out this is what the money went towards really making the animatronics in the turtles suits a lot lighter of course that would be a requirement gave the actors an easier time Jim Henson yeah I can imagine with a shorter budget on the first film he wasn't able to fulfill some of the stuff that he really wanted to do glad he got his chance to actually do that with a bit more budget it did look a little bit nicer in this film actually yeah I think so the extra money has definitely shown that that sort of side of things were difficult but it was a lot easier than the first one with this amount of money of course but parents weren't happy with the first film for what reason it was too violent Uh, and they wanted something similar to the cartoon just watch the cartoon then so they started with taking out casey jones damn you you sons of bitches he was the best i'm sorry i'm so mad right now he was really good casey jones yeah they took him out they took him out he was in the third one although he didn't spoiler alert he's in the third one and they butchered him yeah he wasn't wearing his mask at all or any of that and he never really fought at all he didn't fight at all apparently the mask scared children. It's a hockey mask. Parents also didn't like the fact he was beating up people with hockey sticks and stuff like that. Easily obtainable things that kids could whack things with. He was genuinely an actual great character to be fair. I can't understand still what, despite you telling me all the reasons, I still can't understand why they cut him out of this damn film. Elias Cotius played him really well, I thought. Yeah, very, very good job by him. But they replaced him with some dimwad? Yeah, 
least. It was Kino, the pizza delivery boy. Hooray! Our favourite character from that series. No one... Uh, no, he's not actually a genuine character. He's no, made he really for sucks. Film. He really sucks as a character. Yeah, he's a really good martial artist. He was actually the stunt double for Donatello. Nice! He, yeah, he was the action scene guy for Donatello in the first one. He barely looks about 13, though. He was probably about 15 or 16 at this point. Maybe Beautiful about 18. Face. Ernie Rose Jr. is his name. The character doesn't have any redeeming qualities at all and he was a misogynist as well casually yep. being misogynists all the time he wasn't really a likable character no nope, he was basically flirting with april o'neill the whole time that was annoying he basically at the beginning of the film goes to pick up a woman and then they turn him down so he's really sexist to them it's, it's quite horrible <laughs> well, I, I forgot that even happened to be fair they got a lot of flack for this character as well not only from parents but also from hardcore fans who often refer to him as the scrappy do of the Turtles franchise. That's because he is, and that's the reason why we don't mention scrappy do ever on this podcast ever again unless you reference him. The- <laughs> Turtles also weren't allowed to use their signature weapons all the time and they would fight hand to hand or with improvised weapons such as Michelangelo using sausage links instead of nunchucks to fight off thugs. Although in the UK even this was taken out. So dumb. Up until this point we hadn't actually seen the American version of this but we did this time which was great so we got to see that that scene we'd never seen before. Exactly. For the longest time I never got to see the nunchuck scene in Enter the Dragon until it came out on DVD in 2003. Charged you 15 quid for that DVD. Yes, to be fair, it's got quite a few watches. How many? Three? Four? Hundred? Hundred? Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman were often at odds with Golden Harvest, as well from script to production, as both didn't want the Shredder to return. Good. He was mauled by a dumpster truck at the end of the first film, like I said before, and they also had other ideas for who the main villain was going to be. They pitched the scientist Baxter Stockman and his army of Mauser robots. I thought that would have been cool, actually. That would be really cool, although production said they were worried about how scenes with the robots would play out. They probably thought it'd be too expensive too much effort for, Makes sense. for there to be loads of CGI Mausers bowling about. they got Jim Henson there making practical. Imagine hundreds of those though. Imagine they hundreds. They don't have to be massive, they can just be small. Yeah, but think about Splinter, he's quite small and he takes a lot of work. Good point. Even with CGI, it's only just about become good enough for that to work, I think. They definitely shouldn't do it now. The idea was canned and Stockman's character was changed to Professor Perry in the film. You know, that generic scientist guy they have in the film yeah he's one of the main characters throughout the movie Uh, he's basically just a walking plot device yeah he was just there to forward the plot Laird and Eastman also wanted the Rat King to appear in the movie as well as Stockman not a bad choice again to be fair because they were saying the interactions between him and Splinter would have been really cool they would have been amazing to be fair that would have been cool like a proper fight between them but I'm sure they had many many other ideas and the last last idea on their mind was Shredder being alive. Ugh. But Shredder did return for a second time. Terrible. Terrible idea. Laird and Eastman also didn't want any characters from the cartoon either. Why? 
because they're shit. Good point. Okay, moving on. <laughs> like Bebop and Rocksteady and Crank, and stated there was enough lore to draw from the comics as they had done that with the first movie. And yeah, they, that's a fair point. And they did quite a good job. Though none of these characters made it in, a compromise was got to. Was w- made. Was made. And Toka and Razar made their debut in this film instead of Bebop and Rocksteady. Should have been Bebop and Rocksteady. Bebop and Rocksteady suck, man. It should have been. They suck. They right. do suck, yeah. But Toka and Razar weren't much better. Exactly. Like, uh, they, Bob th- and Rocksteady are a little bit more recognisable. They were a mutated snapping turtle and a wolf. They did look cool as hell in the movie, though. That, that actually, I will say. They yeah, did. they did. They put Jim Henson to very good use on this film, actually. They were bad characters, though, because they're babies. Even though people at the time didn't really take to them, they did become part of Turtles canon. Also, in the film, voiced by the person who does Fred Jones's voice in Scooby-Doo and has done it for a very long time, Frank Welker. Oh, very nice. Which is pretty cool. <laughs> we all know what the film is most famous for. Don't you dare mention this. I'm going to have to. I Don't have you to. dare. Look, like, we have to pay journalistic royalties. Wait, reasons. wait, wait. We have to pay royalties every time we mention this, so be careful. All right, cool. Well, I have to because I'm a journalist. I, I know. <laughs> you keep saying you're a journalist. Being a podcaster doesn't make you a journalist. I'm a journalist. <laughs> Just like Kanye West is a smart person, if you keep saying it, it's gonna happen. Or ye. Sorry, ye. Actually, I do like your first few albums. (laughs) 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 But yeah, enough about Kanye, because we got another rapper coming in. Oh, I see what you did there, Jesus Christ. (laughs) I thought you were just talking about some tangent or something. I don't know, you do that a lot. You've got to be very sparse on the naming here. It's cost us a lot of money to be able to actually say this that's true alright so be careful Go. so near the end of the film there is a rave going on that so happens to be going on opposite the Shredder's hideout the turtles fight Toka and Razar in this club everyone seems to think it's a stage show they're performers rapper Vanilla Ice okay, right. that's a thousand pounds down the drain it's where I spent I'd say who's at the peak of his career at this point is on stage and seeing this action breaks into a ninja rap which most people who were kids at the time remember because everyone from like 1991 to 2001 was singing it. Pretty much. Couldn't get away from this in the schoolyard. Go ninja, go ninja, go. Go ninja, go ninja, go. Go ninja, go ninja, go. Go, 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 go. According to famous terrible rapper, jerk and exaggerator Vanilla Ice, a.k.a. Rob Van Winkle. Wow, okay, you dropped his real name in there. So it's a thousand for the Vanilla Ice. So that's another thousand, three thousand. He usually charges about two to three thousand for his real name. So we're at a six here. That's right. And to be fair, you just called him a jerk. So that's libel. We're getting done. Sorry, guys, this is off the air now, isn't it? Hope no, you enjoyed it. No, this is just from other sources who've said he's a jerk. Oh, they, yeah. This those is the, many, many sources this is that the, have said he's a jerk. And this is the journalism. I'm not saying he's a jerk. Journalism. I've never met the man before. Yeah, he claims to have wrote the song in 30 minutes, though he's not the best person to ask, as I said, he, he's a famous exaggerator. I reckon this was written in 30 minutes. So basic enough to be believed that it's written in 30 minutes. That's a fair point, yeah. And that, I reckon that, it's a team of writers that wrote this in 30 minutes. Yeah, I don't think he could shit this out in 30 minutes, to be not honest. Not on his own, definitely 
not. It sounds like it could be true, though. I'll give that man that one. Oh. When Vanilla Ice... That's another thousand. ...first arrived on the movie set, Michelin Sisti, the actor in the Michelangelo suit, went up to Vanilla Ice to give him a hug and welcome him aboard on the movie. However, Ice's overweight bodyguard stiff-armed him, even with the full turtle suit on, and nearly 18 of the actors and stuntmen, including Daniel Pessina, stepped forward to pounce and defend Sisti. The film's stunt coordinator, Pat E. Johnson, immediately stepped in and stopped them from fighting. Pessina later told the incident in an online interview and said that Vanilla Ice's bodyguards almost got their butt kicked. That's really interesting, yeah. but it doesn't surprise me considering what he is like. Apparently it's his brand, being a jerk is part of his brand. That's him, that's Vanilla Ice. Just to talk about Vanilla Ice is going to cost us, oh, that's another one, that's 10 grand, mate. So that is the production for Turtles 2. Now we're going to kick into the review. Yes, we will. Ooh, I feel seasick. Give us an overview of what the story is in this one. As we explained earlier, the Shredder is alive again after being crushed by a dumpster and he is researching the turtles and their origins. He finds out that a scientist created an ooze, basically radioactive material, to genetically alter animals. But there's some sort of scandal going on at the same time with April O'Neil researching this company who actually are involved in this whole thing as well. The Shredder finds this ooze uses it to create his own super beings, which like you said with Tucker and Razor, they then go to fight the turtles and take them down. In the meantime the turtles are looking for a new lair as their one is compromised and this is where we learn a lot of their origins. On an unfortunate note, but this is the very start of the movie we get a splash screen that says in memory of Jim Henson as he unfortunately passed during the production of this movie. Like with the first film, we get a lot of of typical New York sweep shots. To be fair, this is the one where they're all gorging on pizza in a well-disgusting way, isn't it? It is. So we get a shot of this absolutely giant slice of pizza being munched by... Was it a fat guy? No, it was everyone. There oh, was, just there everyone was, in general is just eating yeah. this monster pizza. Yeah, first you get a sweeping shot of New York, then you get about 100 different people eating massive slices of pizza in a well-disgusting way for some reason. It's like you trying to eat popcorn. It is. It's shameful. It's like they've ramped up pizza production in this entire film 75% or something. The next thing we have is we have a shot of April's apartment. The turtles have been living there. There's so many pizza boxes. So they've got to find a new lair. Their old lair was compromised. And so now they're living at April O'Neil's house. Got next because I remember this scene quite clearly. There's a robber. He goes into a place to rob the place and just brazenly walks in there with no mask on his face. But anyway, this is where we get our introduction to Kino. He's a very good martial artist. I'll give him credit for that. But who the hell is this kid? Why do we see him before we see the turtles? They're trying to build up suspense for the turtles, but they haven't done it in a very good way this time. Compared to the first one. Yeah, the first one was brooding and very dark and very dramatic. This one is very campy and very comical, in a sense. It is. This is where Kino runs down into a subway where he is ambushed by a bunch of people. What we can only imagine as our gang members of this robber that he's just tried to stop and this is where the turtles appear and just save him like they're watching over every member of the city at every moment in time yeah they tie up a bunch of thugs luckily he's saved Kino handles himself pretty well for a time seems to impress the turtles a little bit with his skills yeah he's got some sick kicks 
in there. Amazing kicks. Fair play to you, dude. You got some good skills. Your ninja skills are reaching their peak. First film was actually quite interesting. It was a good, good blend between the darkness and the broodiness of the comics, as well as having some of the campiness from the series. But this one went full series route. It's like they tried to ignore the comic books. That's why we didn't really get any toys for the first Turtles film. And that's why we got them for this one and the third one. Speaking of changes, this is where we see our first big change. Got a different actress for April. The person who played April in the first one, they said she complained too much. What? She didn't really like the way things were done and stuff like that. So she left, which is unfortunate, but that's it. That's the story. Okay, interesting story. Who do you prefer, first or second? First. Yes, agreed. Fair actress. We're just setting the scene of how much slobbly like that the turtles are in this house. They're chucking pizza slices around like they're footballs and yelling touchdown. Great stuff. Really balancing the plot there. Pizza time! We've got this incredible puff of smoke over this garbage pile and we see the arm of the shredder. He's alive. In the first one, he yep. definitely, definitely got killed. How long's advanced in this plot since the first film in their time? Must have been living there a few weeks. Not long, I don't think. Weeks, maybe? Yeah, a few weeks. A few weeks, yeah. There you go. He's been in a garbage pile, dead, for two weeks, and then suddenly reanimates. I know the feeling. This is also where we see the Foot Clan are still in operation in the landfill site. It's just a landfill site. We get a shot of the landfill site and a little shack there that is occupied by the Foot Clan. They just have a meeting there. Small meeting. Small in numbers. This is where we get the reintroduction of the Shredder's main henchman, Tatsu, which is what we didn't remember from the first film because I wrote it down this time good words he only ever says it a couple of times I think in the entirety of these two movies it's a bit weird they've all failed so he's kicking their asses and their kids yeah it's quite painful to watch actually I mean why if, if parents were going to kick off about anything I'm pretty they sure they should have complained about this so I wrote down that this guy is rambling through a live report and it seems a bit strange now this is to do with a guy who works at a company that April's trying to expose and this is where we get plot devices about the use. Oh, fun. Oh, he's, he's yeah, having he's, a ramble. He's giving the politicians answers, isn't Yeah, he? yeah, he's having a ramble and he even says at one point, sorry, I've been known to ramble. This is the walking plot device scientist that we were talking about. So yeah, he rambles for a live report and then suddenly he just has to go mysteriously so quickly. Like something has happened, clearly, because someone, which just so happens to be Kino, discovers a giant flower. Ugh. And he's like, I know, what this I should take this and take this to the turtles oh how would he oh my yeah I know he's so weak the way they link them I know he met them how does he know where they live what happens is he goes to deliver a pizza and the pizza just so happens to be April O'Neil's house that they deliver to god and he he notices all the pizza boxes there and she's a frequent customer he's been really nosy been really pervy too yeah we should probably skip ahead a few scenes we definitely should because I definitely wanted to do that whilst we were watching this film. I'm not actually going to skip through a couple of scenes. going to blast through a couple of things here that were quite funny. Someone was kissing a mop. Who was that? One of the turtles was kissing a mop. Oh, it's Michelangelo. Yep. 
And then we get a Karate Kid reference. When? Wax on, wax off. During these scenes at April's house when they're cleaning the house. Oh. They're trying to clean up the house to impress April and they do a, a Karate Kid reference. Oh, yeah, they do because they do a Casablanca one in the first one. Yeah, I said that Use is linked to TGRI. TGRI is the company that was implicated in this problem in the beginning. We've got an evil scientist as well. Why are the turtles hacking something? Well, we had Donatello using his hacking skills at some point. Does he even have hacking skills? He's the one who's good at electronic stuff. No problem. I wrote, oh, so this is a bit weird, right? We have the turtles huddling up in the middle of a fight. So they're having a fight with the Foot Clan. They have a huddle in the middle of the fight and the fight stops. It was one of the best fights after that huddle, though. Of course it was, but it's stupid that they stopped fighting them so they could fucking huddle. What joke. Terminate the turtles. April, right? So when she comes back home and Kino's trying to perv on her, find out more about what's going on, she says to him, I think you better sit down when he sees the turtles and then he faints. I thought this stood out because he's already seen them. So he sees the turtles, they discuss what's going on. So he tells them about this ooze and then this is where we see Splinter for the first time. Well, not really the first time, sorry, but in some prominence. So he explains their backstory to them quite a lot. He does. In massive detail detail in a big old exposition dump. It was one of the better parts of the movie, to be fair. It was well done. It was quite tastefully done. The origin story of the turtles. Yep. It was very good. It was quite well narrated by Splinter as well. It was probably one of the best moments in this film, I would agree. And that's saying something because this film was quite bad. Let's get shell! So Schroeder discovers the ooze. He does, indeed. And this is where we get that he's captured this evil scientist. I I don't know if he's evil. I think he's just... Just a scientist. He's just morally... Morally grey. Yeah. So we get this morally grey scientist being captured by the Shredder, and he is tasked with creating... Oh, God. Why? Toko and Razor. Baby Snap and Turtle, and a baby wolf, I guess. It's the Uh, only animals they could find at the time, I guess. No, it wasn't. It was the fact that Shredder said, bring me two dangerous animals, and he did, but they were babies. Fucking snapping turtle. Yeah, they're pretty fucking dangerous. So is a, so is a wolf. A wolf thing. is incredibly dangerous too. And they do look really cool when they get the ooze put on them, but they're yeah. held in this sort of box. Thing, this box thing, then a little bit of ooze gets dropped on them. They turn hench, and they're like basically big spiky Bowser-looking things from yep. Super Mario or something. And They did look kind of cool to be fair they did look really cool this was some of Jim Henson's finest work uh, yeah they look really cool but they're really shit characters and they're really one dimensional mama yeah, they're, they're babies it's just like yeah they're babies and they're stupid but Shredder does eventually train them to be- become killing machines a bit better anyway they're still a bit stupid after this we get Raph sneaking off he's been told not to but he does so he sneaks off with Kino because Kino happens to know where the foot clan are. So Raph gets himself captured like an idiot. Surprise! Whoa! He's Splinter in this film now. I had to move it on somehow. Can't have Splinter getting captured again. So Raphael does the really stupid thing of trying to take on the Foot Clan with a 16-year-old pizza boy who knows martial arts for some reason. <laughs> it sounds so stupid when you actually say it, but that's because it is. So the Turtles are tasked with saving Raphael. Yeah, yes, they are. And we get some 
couple of really stupid things from here. They all get caught in a net trap. Oh, they do, don't they? They all get caught in a net trap, and then Splinter turns up out of fucking nowhere to become the Deus Ex Machina that he was always destined to be. <sighs> this this film is trope heaven, absolute trope heaven. We get a couple of Wilhelm screams in there as well. It's great. We do actually get our first look at Tocker and Razor, which is good. So when we get to the point where Tocker and Razor have first been shown, we get a convenient manhole leading to the sewer and they run away in the landfill site that they just so happen to get back to where they need to go. Well, actually, they don't get back to where they need to go. Luckily, what they do is they find their new hideout. Which is an old abandoned subway car. Yeah, just so happen to come across that. In an old station that's disused. But they definitely spent a lot of their budget on cobwebs here. Yeah, there was a lot of cobwebs here. They they did love a cobweb back in the 90s. There was a lot of them. Just look at Raiders of the Lost Ark where he has to plough through that massive cobweb. To be fair, that is one of the best cobweb heavy scenes. Yeah, I'd definitely give it the Oscar for best cobweb scene. (laughs) Fuck's sake. (laughs) Fuck. Their convenient sewer opening has a bit of a caveat to it. Now, they try to convince the scientist to come with them, but he'd rather get captured by the shredder than go into the sewers. He just gets captured? Yes. Okay. That's... (laughs) That's not really clever. I mean, you are a scientist, so you could yep. use your brain a bit more. We've got classic 90s jokes and tropes in here. So one of them is drinking out of a Bart Simpson glass. They do this because he's saying cowbunker on the mug. So that's the Tursle's phrase. They yep. say cowbunker, but also Bart Simpson says cowbunker. Get a scene here where one of the turtles is laid on their shell and spun around very fast. And after they've done so, it says, whoa, major spin cycle. <sighs> This is the level of the fucking dialogue in this Jeez. film. Gonna have to cap it up for 11 here, I'm afraid. This is where you get the Vanilla Rice concert. Tocker and Razor are in there. They're having the fight with the turtles. We get a really, really gross burp in one of their faces. And everyone seems to think that it's a stage performance when it's just the fight in a warehouse yep. just turned into a rave hole. You know, everyone thinks that, even Vanilla Rice, and, you know, he so happens to have written down a ninja song, which he can now use in context which is pretty excellent don't give that man credit yeah. it's in the context of the film I know but no it's stupid it's, it's really fucking stupid dumb. Like, he, he somehow had a pocket ninja song well we're gonna play it for you now yo it's the green machine gonna rock the town without being seen have you ever seen a turtle get down when we were researching this, we obviously had to watch this. It got stuck in our heads for about a week. Yeah, it did. About it did. a week. It was. It now was that weird. hell's going to continue again. But yeah, after this vanilla ice debacle, they seem to have beaten Token Razor. Do they? Do they beat them? They beat them. They do beat them in a dance fight. What with happens? the scientists dancing. They have a dance fight. A dance fight. A dance fight. So the last thing we have is the Super Shredder is born. He's got some of the ooze on him. And it's really cool. He's really hench and it looks really cool. Yeah. But it's really stupid because he's conveniently got... they fight under a pier. Yep. The fact is he's hench. He's taking big swipes at the turtles and he basically ends up killing himself. Hopefully this time actually killing himself as he has a pier fall on top of him. God damn it. Good. Good. 
stay dead. So he is dead, question mark. Leave it open, don't know. But then we see that the ninja rap is born and it's a, become a big thing. Blinders starts rapping it and that's... Uh, and he made another funny. He starts rapping, he's like, go ninja, go ninja, go. And then... Oh, he... I made another funny. All right, that's passable. That's a passable funny. I suppose he's doing things that people wouldn't expect him to do. And that's where the film ends. Good. Give an overview, mate. What did you think? It wasn't as good as the first one. It was a lot goofier because they wanted to sell toys. And it really comes through in the way that the film is written, the comedy and all that. It's a really corporatist sort of film. It's still kind of watchable, but not as good as the first one. I wouldn't say the first one is great by any standards, but there's a lot of good in it. Whereas Mm. in this one, there's far less. Oh yeah, I definitely agree with that. I would say that the first film is very watchable. It's not the best film you're ever going to watch. No, but there was actually character development. In this one, that feels like the turtles just stay in one place and never leave and they're really goofy. And I mean, you had in the first one, you had Raphael and Leo beef in it, which was actually a really good art. They had a lot of the same tropes in this film as well, though. They had that in there. They did, but not nearly to the level of the first one where it felt like actual character development. They slide away from actually having character development like the second film in the series is usually one of the most difficult because you've already set up your characters what do you do with them next they didn't give them justice in any way shape or form they went down the too campy route too many one liners and cheesiness for it we're about to go further down into that route though we are indeed because we are going on to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 subtitled Turtles Turtles in in Time. Time Hey, you were expecting maybe uh, the Adams Family? Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 is the 1993 prequel, officially subtitled Turtles in Time for a reason. It was actually linked to the first two because yeah, it, because it, it starts straight off from where the second one ended. It does, but it has absolutely nothing to do with their character development over the course of the last two films at all. It doesn't. It's very fillery. It is. They definitely did not have an idea of what they wanted to do with this third movie so they'd already killed off the Shredder again so what did they do? Golden Harvest again had low expectations of the movie it was only it was only given a 17 million dollar budget instead of 25 million from last time that's probably because they didn't have Jim Henson aboard so they couldn't actually spend that extra money yeah exactly it was a success though it earned 42 million dollars in the US alone the fans were absolutely burnt out by the slew of terrible Turtles content such as the god-awful musical we forgot to talk about the musical we don't want to talk about it too much because it is a hulking disgusting ridiculous pile of shit it's called teenage mutant ninja turtles out of their shells tour and if you want to torture yourself for an hour and a half the full thing is on youtube and you get to see the turtles rapping you get to see the shredder rapping you get to see them singing and a dancing and oh my god it is terrible now you didn't want watched the whole thing did you i've watched parts of it and i wanted to die so i'm not going to put myself through an hour and a half but if you're that kind of person it is up there for historical purposes i did there's a hell that i'll never be able to get back from all for the sake of comedy i've ruined my life (sighs) 
You could have just not watched it, and it would have been, it would have been the same. So you're basically saying that I ruined my life before I even watched that. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Sweet. All right. So low expectations. Yes. Sick. All right. So give us some highlights. Well, how can I give you highlights? The whole thing is a travesty. It is a fucking disgrace. There are no highlights. Oh, so you haven't actually watched it then? Yes, I have. All right. What's a scene? So they start out with them on skateboards and singing out of their shells. It is horrible. It yeah. sets off from the very beginning to be as cringeworthy and as horrible as possible. Yeah, it's a very corporate thing. The fucking bite scenes, if you can call them that, with the shredder, some of the worst shit that I have ever seen. And I watched Johnny Depp as Sweeney Todd. Good God. <laughs> Good one. This will be the last film for in cinemas for a very long time. Though the short-lived series, Ninja Turtles, The Next Mutation, loosely picks up from where the film trilogy left off. Really? Why would you want to do that? Maybe because there's an already established story there. Fair point. To be fair, they would do that later with the 2007 movie as well. Ah, okay. Cool. Though it was advertised being a continuation of the 1987 cartoon, so a lot of people got annoyed, of course. Of course. Jim Henson had died shortly before the second movie, so the studio had to hire someone else. All effects company were taken on, and it shows that they didn't have the budget or the skill to pull off what Jim Henson did. Of course they didn't. As they looked terrible. Yeah, it was a significant downgrade to the costuming of the first and second film. It's like staring into a Chucky doll for about an hour and not being creeped out by it. Yeah, perfect, perfect. The mouths were very funny on it, though, because they were not synced up very well at mm, all. No, they were It was awful. Henson had spent a lot of time making sure that those mouths were perfect because he knew how much of an issue they were. But this company clearly did not understand that. It really shows. Many of the key actors would not be present either. Mark Caso, the performer inside the Leonardo costume, is the only cast to return from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle 2 Secret of the Use 1991 in brackets. Brian Toshi, the voice of Neil Brian Toshi, the voice of Leonardo, and Robbie Rist, the voice of Michelangelo, are the only actors who appeared in all three movies in the trilogy. Corey Feldman, who appeared in the first one, makes his return as the voice of Donatello. Good. Though he's only paid one thousand $1,500. The same that he was paid in the first movie. What the fuck? Yeah though he did negotiate a raise but was turned down. Clearly negotiation skills are not one of his strong suits then. The film was loosely based on a series of comics that ran at some point. Yeah, very loosely based as you'll see. And also very, very, very loosely based on a potential video game? No, it wasn't. Good, because I wouldn't want it linked to that. Yeah, well, on with the review. Is that all you've got for the production then? Yeah, it is. Surprisingly sparse actually. The information's not as readily available then. No, it wasn't. This was a collection of small bits of information I could find. I did find a full story on how this guy whose parents worked on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, it destroyed their relationship and stuff. That was weird. You can go and look that up, but I'm not going to read that here. Um, but do you have the link for that? Yeah, I'll put the link in the show notes. Good, good. I, I would like to read that too, because I actually haven't read that. Yeah, we'll get on with the review. plot 
of the film is that a ancient time travel device from Japan has been discovered and it can send matter, i.e. people, through time. And the receiver of this ancient artifact just so happens to be in Japan in 1603 in the height of the Shogun and the Samurai. Oh dear, I can already smell bad things from that. And we get one of the most typical samurai scenes in all of the history of cinema here as two guys are fighting with samurai swords on horses. This is the very beginning, isn't it? Yeah. I wanted to talk about the very beginning because we have an intro obviously set in the scene of 1603 feudal Japan and within the first 30 seconds of the movie you realise how much trash this really is because we have an orange filter over a sunrise. It's very early morning but then it suddenly just dissolves into absolute nothingness and the orange filter is gone and it's really badly lit and it's such a horrible mistake. Do you remember that? How how we spoke about that? Yeah, it was really unsettling. As I said before, we get the really, really typical samurai fight. But it's for children. Which is really weird because what kid wants to watch a historically accurate samurai fight? We want the Ninja Turtles, but we got two guys fighting on horses really terribly. It's so bad. It's like one of the worst samurai moments I've ever seen. Even worse than that terrible Tom Cruise movie, whatever it was called. The Last Samurai, was it? It's not that bad. It really is. We get our introduction quite early on into the Turtles this time around. We don't get none of the atmosphere that we got from the first two films because we've got the shitty dance intro. What do they dance to? Oh, I can't remember. Fucking hell, what do they dance to? Did you not write it down? I did. I couldn't remember the bloody song. Remember, I'm having to write all of this whilst we're watching the movie. Can you tell me you know that song? Yeah. Yes. It's that one, isn't it? <laughs> You don't know, do you? No. It's just some generic 80s glam rock. And they're all doing the monkey and stuff, and it's really embarrassing. It's bad. It's really bad. They just wanted to fill up this hour and a half movie, basically. Yep, so we get the same old trash, boring-ass, crappy storyline from the first two films. Raph wants to be seen by the public. Hooray! And he gets annoyed because he can't go outside and stuff like that. Yep. And the turtles are a bit more wise about this, apart from Raphael. Yeah, they're like, what's up, Raph? and he's like I'm going out for a movie and stuff then April O'Neil shows up she does and she brings along with her some presents for the turtles and for Master Splinter one of them just so happens to be a giant Japanese egg timer that's pretty cool which turns in to be the time travel device oh fuck oh we get a parallel plot going on here at the same time this is where we get a flash to 1603 Japan and we see the Shogun's son upset about something and he's Flashes some torches up in a rage and walks away. His father just so happens to be holding some mysterious technology. Is it an egg timer? It is an egg timer. Whoa. How did you know? I didn't. I just guessed. This is where we have April touching said egg timer at the same time that this guy, this princely guy, happens to touch this egg timer. When they swap places. That's uh, whoa, man. But they also swap clothes. Kubrick. Kubrick. Don't ever mention Kubrick. 
Kubrick again when you're mentioning this film. Yeah, they sort close conveniently, so luckily they both, either respective person, blends in to the time. So this princely dude gets sent to 1992 or whatever. 93. 93. This dude gets sent to 93. April gets sent back to 1603. There is a caveat to this, and this is where we get another mistake. They start explaining the mechanics of how time travel works and quantum displacement theory, I think it was. So they swap clothes, but April's Walkman still happens to be on her in the past, which is a huge time-based continuity error. Very nice. Why did it not go onto the guy? Why did she still have it? Because movie. That's why. Movie's got a movie and they have a scene where they discover this fucking technology and it's like, oh, she's a witch. Nicely enough, we get Casey back for this third film. Well, badly enough, he's a butchered character. Yeah, I meant having the actor back at least and having the character in there was a nice idea at first. At least he got paid. That's about all you can say, really. The next two points I've got listed here, this is an open question. Why are turtles so dumb this time around? In a film about Ninja Turtles, there is not one shred of fighting in the first 32 minutes, apart from this child samurai intro. The turtles do not fight at all until 30-odd two minutes. It was torture. And speaking about tortures, we get a torture chamber during a kid's movie where April is locked away. Yeah, it's quite horrible. (laughs) The PG movie. Yeah, there are some really tortured souls, but this is where she meets that guy. But this is also... You know, I'm sorry I let out that stupid laugh, but thinking about this was absolutely horrific. So she sees a guy in a cage who may look somewhat familiar, but she seems to forget that she's in a completely different time. So she shouts across, Casey? Because she thinks it looks like Casey Jones. He turns around and it is not. And then she sees a rat and says, I recognise you too i.e. Splinter. Movie, what have you done? There's so many lines like this. It was so badly written. She meets this guy. Uh, they seem to like each other or somewhat for some reason and they eventually get out of this torture chamber they for do. some reason. Isn't it because they bring her back to the Shogun and he's like, yeah, what you got? And then he No, because gets... she does say she's a witch, I think, doesn't she? Oh, she says she's a witch and then they get away because she says that. And... Well, it's also because the turtle show up at this point because they figured out about time travel so they send themselves back but it's at this point that four of the guards of the Shogun have gone to the future and this is where we get the side storyline of Casey Jones babysitting people from the 1600s he slaps on the TV it's on a hockey game doesn't he yeah he puts on a hockey game and they can't get enough of it and that's basically the story I've just summarised it mostly they try and play a game of hockey doesn't go well that's actually quite a funny moment to be fair isn't it yeah it is is. so he basically sets up a hockey game for them after they've watched hockey on TV and instead of actually playing hockey they just fight each other it's a nugget in an otherwise absolute turd so fair enough okay guys let's play a little hockey take your best shot just like you saw on TV hey good hockey 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 
So at this point, we get Walker. What's he doing? What's he saying? Oh, he's basically just a colonist and he wants to fucking sell guns to Japan in return for a lot of their jewels and then a lot of their land. They get roped into helping this village, don't they? They do, yeah. They they help this village out, overcome the evil colonists. Oh no, evil colonists all around. So we see one guy who's quite large and one of them says, did you pack a lunch or free? Just the state of the jokes that we'll get. I was waiting for a punchline there. During this film, we do get one of the classiest, most ridiculous... I can't even say classy. Let's scrap that. Scrap the classy. We'll get one of the most ridiculous, unbelievably crappiest lines in this entire film and in the entire series of films in general. Sean, you remember the line, don't you? Help! I'm a turtle and I can't get up. <sighs> this is played in the trailer, so Michelangelo falls over and April helps him up. But he says that as she's walking over to him. We will insert clip now. Help, I'm a turtle and I can't get up. So don't they next go to the village? Yep. They storm in the village. Yeah, the village has been pillaged for a scepter, which is obviously that time travel device. Turtles get accused of it. The people of the village aren't happy. And yep. the turtles are like, what were you expecting? Maybe the Adams family? They did actually say that as well. That was also in the goddamn trailer. It was. After this, befriend the villagers. Yes, because Mikey runs into a burning building to save a kid. Yeah, that was pretty. Yeah. They break the space-time continuum by teaching the Japanese how to do CPR. Good job. Well, there's going to be a lot more people living these days now yep. because of that. I'm going to drop something in here, right? Another big mistake that we have. Did you notice, actually, that April's skirt gets shorter and shorter throughout the film? No, I didn't. I thought that was my will. Nope, it was your not only the will, but her skirt too. Bit weird. Kawabanga! During the main story, they actually break the scepter, their time travel device, so they have to try and fashion a new one. So they get a blacksmith to actually make a new one, but then in the end, they don't even need it anyway. It gets broken, doesn't it? Why was there a Don King joke like every other film in the 90s? What's the context of this Don King joke? I can't remember. Did you just write Don King joke again? I did just write Don King joke, because it's quite hard to actually keep up with these films being that bad and having to write how many bad things there are about it. God, this is horrible. They pulled out all the 90s tropey jokes, like Don King joke, all that kind of crap, and Adam's families, and by this point, I'd lost the will to live and started writing on my face. Got a nice cheesy line here. We must go now, but but it's time to say goodbye. Because Raph takes care of this little kid. He's like a big fan of Raph's, and then it's quite an emotional bit at the end. Actually, some good acting right there. It was. That's redeemable. Redeemable. But still a big ugly yep. tail. We get this moment where they're having to send back each person. So they all go back barring one because Mikey wants to stay behind. Yeah, we've got this a horrible fight with the imperialists. After the turtles trying to save the village and now the village is invaded, the final fight with Walker happens on top of a roof and it's not nearly as cool as you'd think it is. It's no. just him running away like an idiot yep. and he, he gets caught up to and he has a device that allows to go back because he had stolen it. He did steal that. He actually got the one that the turtles dropped earlier in the woods. Not the one that they just broke, but the one that they dropped at the beginning of the movie in the woods. So, he has it, he throws it and they have to catch it and he tries to make his escape down a rope. He forgets his canaries, so he climbs back up. Not Casey Jones fires a catapult, hits this rope, he then falls off into the fog below. He falls into water, but they obviously 
obviously it, didn't have enough money for a splash yeah, or, so any, or any actual water. What you've got is some sort of water texture on Microsoft Paint and him just disappearing into it. It's a joke. It's an utter joke. They get the scepter yep, and then everyone do. changes round and stuff and then Splinter makes a third funny. Did he? I don't think he did. He puts a lampshade on his head and says, yo, dude, after Mike's deep traumatisation about them going through time and stuff like that. Mm. That's how that film ends. And that's, With a dance number, like it started. Yeah, and that's the end of that trilogy. Thank God. The first film was good and they steadily get worse until this one, which is a complete Enough garbage to. pile. I would never recommend watching this. It's a really sour note for the trilogy. Yeah. Just go and watch the first one. You'll enjoy it. We watched it because we had to, but we wouldn't have even watched this for a laugh. What a pile of shit. Speaking of things that are not pile of shit, we're going to start talking about the games. to start out with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the NES. We're going to have a quick roundup of the games and our recommends and our stay away from. So I haven't got a good name for that one. But yeah, we're going to give our quick reviews of the our games. stay aways from. Our stays aways from. Don't. We're going to start with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on the NES. This game was released in June of 1989 in North America, the 12th of May in Japan and the 12th of August of 1990 in Europe for the NES. This game was ported several times to various home computers over the time including the MSX, the ZX Spectrum, the Amiga, Commodore 64 and the Amstrad CPC. Yeah, a lot of people back then had this game and it was a really bad game. It was a side-scrolling platformer. You had a map screen to go to which level you wanted to go to. Did you know, interestingly enough, that this game was actually added to the Wii Virtual Console in 2007? But it was actually removed for licensing reasons in 2012. Yeah. This is where we actually have to go against one of our principles and we have to talk about fuck Konami because Konami and that's the last time I mentioned fuck Konami because Konami actually made some pretty good games in this series. So fair they play really to did. them. They really did. They were basically the main people making the Turtles games yes, at this time. They, although the first one isn't very good they do get significantly better as time goes on. So this game although it was developed and produced by Konami the game was actually published by Ultra Games in North America and Palcom and US Gold in Europe and Australia respectively. I did know that because the Amiga version of this was a really bad port of, okay, then. of an already bad game which was already poorly designed. Yeah, Along with the arcade game, this is one of the very first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles games that was based on the animated series and the box art was taken from Michael Dooley's cover of TMNT number 4 reprint of the comics. Yeah, that's really cool. Now the plot of the game is centred around retrieving a life transformer gun from the shredder so turtles have to use it to restore splinter to his human form now do you want to explain a little bit about the gameplay of this one mate do you want to do that it's a side scrolling platformer you have a map screen you can go to any level you want to go to within reason you just walk around you have to take certain levels to go through to get to other parts of the map and stuff like that sometimes they can be dud areas sometimes you might get bonuses like little pizzas and stuff this side scrolling platformer where you jump you attack 
attack bad guys and it is a stupidly hard NES game it is yep. famously a really hard game it controls really badly yeah I was going to say it's mainly a hard game because of how badly it controls the old NES tropes of up to jump you have to press up to jump which is a nightmare you should have a button press as jump because you're also moving about a lot in this game it asks of a lot the bad guys keep respawning all the time it's a nightmare to play it, it changes the rules constantly pain to play I do not recommend going back to this one anyone remember the electric algae in the water oh bit? what you mean the Hudson River moment you have two minutes and 20 seconds to disarm eight time bombs yeah that was hard that's all I have to say on yeah. that that summarises the game perfectly yes me. but we're going to talk a little bit about how well it was received as well the game was actually reviewed mainly positively the outlets like Nintendo Power and your Sinclair magazine giving it 8.25 and 90% respectively yeah I do remember this it's, however IGN gave uh, the game a 5.5 and GameSpot gave it a 2.7 out of 10 we're going to move on to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 first released in the arcades in 1989 but was ported to the NES of the same year. In 1991 it was released by Imageworks and ported by Probe Software and it was released for the ZX Spectrum, the Amiga, the Amstrad CPC, we're getting a kind of a trend here, the Atari ST, the PC and the Commodore 64. So the best thing to do is to stay away from all of these ports. The only halfway decent one is the Turtles 2, the arcade game for the NES. The arcade game is just called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You can play that on Xbox 360 or you can download an emulator quite easily and play it. The home computer versions of the game in Europe were changed to Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles, the coin op. And this was due to the censorship in the European territories of the ninja garb and equipment like we'd already discussed. Also, as an interesting caveat, the original arcade version of TMNT2 is actually included as a bonus game on TMNT2 Battle Nexus for the PS2, the Xbox and the GameCube. Although it was the ported arcade version, it had altered music and most of the voice clips edited out. It can be unlocked by finding an antique in stage 9-1 where the antique turns out to be the original arcade machine. That's really cool. I thought that was awesome. So once again, yeah, this was developed and published by Konami and it was originally sold as a dedicated four-player cabinet in all regions except for Japan, where it was only sold as a two-player conversion kit for the original game. However, these two-player conversion kits were also included into other regions like Europe and the US, as they were generally cheaper alternatives to the four-player cabinets. The plot of the game is that the Shredder has kidnapped April O'Neil and Splinter and the Turtles must give chase and defeat them. The NES version had two new levels, in which the first half of Scene 3 and all of Scene 6, as well as including new enemies and two new bosses, Tora, dog-like blizzard beast, and Shogun, a robotic samurai. In addition to this, the NES version has a notable product placement for Pizza Hut, with the rear cover of the instruction manual including a coupon for one free personal pan pizza, of which had actually had an expiry date of December 31st, 1991. It's unusual because coupons never <laughs> had expiry dates. Not back then, anyway. No, so they were smart enough to think about that one. Very nice. So Very do you nice. want to talk about a little bit of the gameplay of this one, mate? Yeah, this is a beat-em-up. This will use the engine that Konami will go on to use in all of their beat-em-up games, and it's a, probably one of their better beat-em-up games. It looks 
really nice. The graphics are great. You can play as all four of the turtles and you're punching, kicking through all these levels. As we said, the first level is a burning building and it looks cool as shit. The bosses here are really good. You got classic cartoon stuff like Bebop and Rocksteady. This is based on the cartoon series. Yep. They shout out all their phrases like turtle power and stuff. This they one's did. still insanely playable to this day. We love this. I thought this was great. Yeah, this is a brilliant game. It's a brilliant game. It's um, got excellent music as well. Yeah, it was because of the fact that it was an arcade game first, it actually took the eight-way directional control of the turtles into mind with the NES port and it worked fantastically. It also included certain level hazards such as parking meters, traffic cones and exploding oil drums which made it a lot more interesting than the first game. It wasn't cheap but it was difficult. It was designed to take your money. It was a great game and now you can play it and not worry about money. Yeah, so they obviously had to increase some of the difficulty in that sense for home versions because people were going to blast through it pretty Especially quickly. Especially the Amiga one. It's a shit show. So this game was received incredibly well and it's probably for good reason to be fair. Japanese gaming mag for Mitsu gave the Famicom version of the game 26 out of 40 which is not a bad score actually. Games Radar ranked it as the 25th best NES game ever made. Staff at the magazine attributed TMNT's 2 continued success to the game whilst praising its visuals, its audio and its combat system which I think is very very well set. Yeah I can't say better myself to be honest. No. We'll just say we'd definitely recommend going to play TMNT the 1989 arcade yeah. game. For sure for sure. This actually introduced Konami's very typical two button special attacks as well as including the classic Konami code. We're going to talk about next the game that everyone and I mean everyone remembers which is Turtles in Time. I thought we were going to talk about Turtles 3 the Manhattan Project first because it comes for Turtles for Turtles in Time. No because technically this was released first. Oh. Yes. So this was actually released in the arcades in 1991 worldwide whereas Turtles 3 the Manhattan Project came in 1992. But this is really interesting this one Turtles in Time because the arcade game was quite different to the SNES game. Yes and I thought I'd let you take this one because you're a pretty much an expert of both versions. So there were a lot of changes from the arcade game to the SNES game. A lot of the bosses were changed around so instead of on one level you had Slash, in the arcade version you had Cement Man. Levels like Sewer Surfing were changed quite a lot. Yeah they were, they had a whole area added to that whole level didn't they? Yeah so this is the bonus stage in both games where you're surfing along in the sewer and cheese monsters come after you. In the arcade game this you get hurt by mines and stuff as well. Yeah you get attacked by cheese monsters and mines and stuff. In the arcade game this was a lot longer but a lot less interesting with the obstacles and stuff although it did have a lot of cheese monsters flying throughout. It's a lot of cheese monsters. Which was pretty cool. Also in the arcade version the animation of the turtles was a lot better but the hitboxes were a bit weird so they felt really off in this version compared to the SNES version. It was very strange to be honest. It also felt very off compared to the 1989 arcade game. Yep so when we played these we played these back to back so we played the arcade game and then the SNES version and the SNES version I have to say is noticeably better. Yeah in that department definitely. Yep. Also noticeably in the sewer surfing level it ends with the turtles being chucked back in time in the arcade version and it looks very weird as well because Shredder's image is projected onto a back wall in the sewers and he says oh now I'm fed up I'm going to banish you through time whereas in the SNES version after 
after the suicide level, they go to the Technodrome. Oh yeah, it's a really good level as well. You Amazing get, level. You, you get Mausers, you get Token Razara as a sub boss, which you never got in the arcade. None of this level exists. And then finally, you go up and fight Shredder, and he's in some sort of machine, and you got to throw foot soldiers into him. Yep. And this is where, in the SNES version, he sends you back in time. Yeah, because he gets fed up of you throwing foot soldiers towards him. Well, he gets fed up of you foiling his plans in general. I mean, yep. they just beat the Fugatoid, they beat Baxter Stockman, they just taken down everyone in the Technodrome. And this is where it makes a lot more sense than being flung back in time. Agreed. One last difference i'll probably kick myself because there's quite a few more that i've probably forgotten is the fact that they changed shredder shredder was the last boss of the arcade version and he was a sword wielding guy and in the snes version it was super shredder and it was cool as hell it and was. he was a sword wielding guy but he was also very fast moving uh, oh this last boss was really hard yeah it was and it was a lot of a better boss compared to the arcade one although the animations of the turtles and a lot of the enemies had changed between the SNES version and the arcade version it seemed to run a lot better didn't it yeah it did it did it was very smooth and the music was fantastic throughout a lot of the stuff about the SNES game is actually genuinely better than the arcade version although it didn't have as many frames as animation I think overall gameplay wise it just felt a lot cleaner and having the additions of the Technodrome was an absolute must it's probably the definitive version to play but we'll go over some of the facts about the game like we have with the the others so this game was actually released like i said in 1991 worldwide in the arcades now this was never officially distributed for the arcades in japan which is very unusual considering how massive the turtles appeal was yeah that's really weird why did they not do this i mean i couldn't find any information out about this that's the so game weird. was bootlegged a lot yeah, using the two-player conversion kit from the previous game it's made its snes debut as tmnt4 turtles in time using the that naming convention which they never did in Japan for some strange reason this was released in Japan in 24th of July of 1992 North America and Europe of August and, and November respectively this is the direct sequel to the arcade game from 1989 which we just discussed there is a slightly altered version of the arcade game that was included as a bonus unlock game in the 2005 game Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3 Mutant Nightmare and Ubisoft released a free D remake of this game oh. on the Xbox Live arcade service called Turtles in Time Reshelled. And it's a pile of puke. It's really ugly graphics. And they also opted to use the arcade version instead of the SNES version, which is a bit weird. So you got missing levels in there. The hitboxes are weird. They're bad. Very bad. This is a very bad game. Do not go and play this one. Go and play the SNES one if you can, or the arcade version. Do sure. not go on Xbox Live and download this. I'd probably go and watch a video just to see how bad it is. I'm not sure if it's still available at the time that we talk on the Xbox Live Arcade service. No, but it was a soulless cash grab. It was a piece of crap, to be fair. Like with the previous arcade game that we mentioned, 1989, this had a two- and four-player version. In the two-player version, the, the players were able to choose which turtles they wanted to play as, whereas the four-player version, they were assigned from left to right as Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, and Raphael. So the original soundtrack 
soundtrack was composed by Matsusuko Izumi, a TMNT veteran who composed the music for the previous arcade game. Yeah, it was a good choice because the music's excellent. And some blues tracks again, it was very fantastic. good. However, the SNES version of the game was produced by Kazuhiro Uehara and Harayumi Yukio, who both went on to produce several Konami games, including one that we're going to discuss in a little bit. I wanted to talk to you about this one because I thought this was quite interesting. The attract mode actually featured a song called Pizza Power, which was taken from... We're going to include the actual clip for you then. Yeah. Something else yep. I forgot to mention, that was on the arcade version only. Yep, but the interesting fact is where this music originally came from, the coming out of their shell tour. Yeah, I know, it was, <laughs> that's really weird. And it was also included on a Konami All-Stars music compilation released in 1993 by King Records. Jesus Christ. That was a bit weird because I think with the first 1989 game, that really did pull me in because it showed you certain scenes of the game and this just kept constantly playing that tune. The thing that I remember the most from this game, especially when we went to Play Expo earlier on this year in 2018, was oh, when you put credits in. It was loud. It was obnoxious. Cowabunga! It was. It was. And you had some jack-off sitting there putting so many goddamn credits in. Someone always does. I've got a little quote for you just to end off Turtles in Time, and this has come from Entertainment Weekly. The Turtles may have peaked on the big screen, but in video game land, they're just reaching their potential. This is one of the best games that Konami have ever done. This is one of the best Turtle games ever made. It's one of my favourite games ever. And although, yes, the gameplay is similar to the 1989 game, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, there was nothing wrong with that at all. We got loads of different situations here. We got cool bonus stages such as Sewer Surfing and Neon Knight Riders. We got Bosses. It is an excellent game. It's one of my favourite soundtracks of all time as well. Yep, and absolutely. Sewer Surfing is probably one of my most listened to songs of all time. I would recommend this. If you want a good beat-em-up, beat-em-up to play with your friends, go and play the arcade version or the SNES version. Just stay the hell away from that Ubisoft version if you can. For sure. Now, I would rate this as one of the top three classic beat-em-ups of the age. Absolutely. This is a fantastic game and it's so unbelievably playable anytime. Just pick it up and play. You know exactly what you're doing. But next, we're going to round up the rest of the games here because there's still a fair few and the reason is is because a fair few of them feel very very similar they they keep with this aesthetic and the general gameplay design that they had in the original arcade game so the Manhattan Project released in Japan on the NES and the Famicom and the 13th of December 1991 it made its North 
American debut in February of 1992 and like we said it features mechanics very similar to the previous arcade game and it was a very solid beat-em-up for a NES game yes it was so basically the shredder takes Manhattan he basically steals Manhattan yes he does <laughs> and the turtles have to go and stop him it's another April O'Neill live report from New York and he just so happens to lift up the city so they have to go back from their vacation through Florida back to New York now there are some differences between the Famicom and NES versions of the game the NES version required the Konami code in order to access the options screen whereas the Famicom version was available from the outset the second difference was that the Famicom version has a game type setting on the options screen that allows friendly damage to be turned on and off by setting it to A and B respect really weird how that wasn't included in the NES version and also that two extra cheat codes were added to the Famicom version a stage select code and a code that increases the number of continues for what reason though did they just want to make the game easier for Japanese people or something it seems that way weird it really does it was awarded the best NES game of 1992 by Electronic Gaming Monthly and Famitsu gave it a 27 out of 40 awarded best overall game in Nintendo Power's 1992 award and next we've got Stone Heist, which is the first game of the Turtles to be released on the Genesis or the Mega Drive in Europe. And it was basically a mashup of assets from all the Turtles games that have come out. And it was a beat-em-up and not a bad one, but it was noticeable that a lot of assets had been reused from several other games. Of course. If you were looking for a Turtles game on the Mega Drive, this is it, really. Yep, if you hadn't had the chance to play Turtles in time because you didn't have a SNES, but you played it in the arcade, you basically you get in this it's absolutely fine there's nothing wrong with it originally in Japan this was released under the name of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Return of the Shredder and it's like I said at this time the only game to be featured on that system side scroller like the previous games we mentioned like you said it was a previous sort of mashup of assets this also included a lot of the music but a lot of the music was actually sped up from the SNES version of Turtles in Time I imagine it's because they've literally ported the actual music from the SNES game yeah I I guess they probably did and it doesn't sound very good as a result yeah. of that it sounds like it's coming through a tin yeah a lot of the music on the Mega Drive sounds brilliant even by today's standards but this is not one of them that stood up very well yeah it's not a bad game it's not a bad game it's not terrible it's just not the best now we come to the last entry that we have for quite a long time with the Turtles in terms of their games now we got three different versions of this game and like I said a game that we will mention later on the Tournament Fighter yeah, so this is a really weird one. This is actually a fighting game similar to Street Fighter 2. It even looks kind of like Street yep. Fighter 2. Unusually released on the NES, SNES, and the Mega Drive. How the hell do you release a NES, SNES, and Mega Drive versions of this? That's how people used to operate back in the day. I know, but, it's, the, but NES the NES only had two buttons on it. The NES only had two buttons. The Mega Drive had three. The Mega Drive didn't really have all the capabilities that the SNES had. Nope, and this is what I wanted to go into because there's some very nice noticeable differences between each yeah, this three is crazy. versions. Yeah, this is crazy. So, the NES version had a story mode on the game where you could choose one of the four turtles who must face the other three to see who is worthy to take up Shredder's challenge. After defeating the third turtle, you face Casey Jones and then Hothead, a figure that was based on the Dragon Ninja from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Adventures comic. Obviously, the last boss is the Shredder. So, you've got two different versus modes here, one against a CPU and one against another player, as well as a four-player tournament mode. Mirror matches were able to happen in this game except with Hothead. Now Hothead wasn't allowed to do this as the game locked it off. However there was a way of B 
being able to do this in a debug menu. But when you did so, the sprites flickered uncontrollably yes. due to their large sizes. Yeah, I was going to say the lack of memory. That's probably why it was locked off in the first place. Yes, it was. Yeah, there was a lot of buggy problems with that character, so they couldn't allow for mirror matches with that one, which is fine. The SNES version, unusually, is the only one that is considered unofficially as TMNT 5. This was to continue the original naming conventions of the previous games and is often considered the last game in the original TMNT series by the fans. But what about the characters, man? Oh, there was characters. We had characters. They were all different in each version, weren't they? Yes, they were. You had all four turtles in every version and that was well, the only good. standard that's... that you had throughout the whole bloody thing. Well, that's probably a standard they should stick to uh, oh, yeah, after, cool. you know, the naming convention of the yeah. game. There were ten playable characters and two bosses. So, like I said, you had the turtles and you had Cyber Shredder. One of the characters, who was War, was from TMNT2 Adventures by Archie Comics. He was also one of the Force Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Asuka, another character, makes her first and only playable appearance. She was originally supposed to be Mitsu from the TMNT2 movie. Yes. But because yes. the character was so poorly received, was cut and Asuka was added. That's what I was waiting for. <laughs> you knew about that one then? Yeah, I did. Nice. Yeah. We have Wingnut, a humanoid alien from the Archie comics in the animated series. Good old classic Chrome Dome from the animated series, who was created by Shredder to destroy the turtles. And a Megan, a mutant shark from the future, and was only ever featured in the Archie comics. Bosses of the game are the Rat King and Karai, who had only featured in the Mirage comics at that time. Although Karai would go on to be a massively prominent character yes. in all of Turtles media. But there were some slight differences with the SNES version in Japan. It was released under the name of Mutant Warriors, weirdly enough, instead of Tournament Fighters. That's a good name. It's a good name. I, I like that. The voices in the announcer and the Turtles are different in the Japanese version, with special move names being easier to hear, as they took some of the voices from Turtles in Time. Why yeah. didn't they do that for us? I have no idea. 90s were weird, man. So in the Japanese version of the game, this is a slight bit of censorship here, Asuka's sprite was different to the overseas release where her leotard was a fong and her victory animation was with her raising her arms and her breasts jiggling. Good old pervy Japan. Gotta love them. Next, we're going to talk about the Mega Drive version. Unfortunately, this does suffer from the problem of having a Mega Drive controller. You have standard punches, you have standard kicks, and it's only one button for each. To input a stronger kick or punch, you have to include forward and then the button. So would you recommend playing the SNES version? Yes. It's the definitive version. Yes, because you've got you've got the four buttons available to you to be able to do light and strong attacks. Not only that, but you've got the full roster of characters. They had a third button on that controller. What do you reckon they used it for? Block. No? Taunting. That's a bit of a waste. Taunts. It might as well just be the NES game now. Pretty much is, though. Yeah, it's probably best to stay away from the Mega Drive version. I wouldn't say that, because it did have some noticeable differences, actually. Because some of the stages were actually destructible, which wasn't actually featured in the other versions of the game. That's quite cool. That they also had an additional new attack called a killer attack. When their life bar was in the red and close to death, it was done by inputting a directional command and pressing taunt. So the characters in this version were the Turtles, Casey Jones, April O'Neil, Ray Fillett, who was a TMNT Adventures Archie comic character. Fucking hell, how do you pronounce that name? Syphius? Uh, is it Syphius? Syphilis? No, not Syphilis. Syphilis? S-I-S-Y-P-H-U-S. Syphius. Syphius, yeah. Misha Beetle in the Japanese version. The game was originally in 
intended to have three bosses. Triceraton, Krang's Android, and Karai were removed. However, the box art of the game shows player one and two as boss characters as well as artwork in the manual for them. And it was discovered in 2010 by a YouTuber by the name of, I cannot pronounce your name at all. Sorry, good sir. That's a really long name. Is that actually his name? Jun An Agu. He discovered that these characters had full movesets, complete colour palettes, as well as being completely stable during gameplay. What a fucking travesty. Why not have the three boss characters in there? That is kind of a shame. But they're in the artwork, in the manual, and in the box. Yep. And yet they were taken out. They were functional. Why would you take them out? I don't get it. Noticeable differences between each version then. That's going to cap off everything we have for the 1980s and 1990s of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. God, yeah, we're tired. T- so much to cover, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a lot to cover. I had a lot of fun doing it. Oh, and yeah. now you've got a lot of things you can probably look at or stay away from. And from its humble beginnings, Mirage Studio grew into a worldwide phenomenon with the Turtles. And it was amazing. It's been such a joy covering it and finding out all of these amazing things about the franchise as a whole. And watching these terrible movies together was terrible, but... Horribly terrible. Yeah. That good ride don't quite stop here, though, does it? No. Because we're going into the 2000s and 2010s to present day in part two coming next time part two coming soon so peter before we say goodbye do you want to dish out the deets the details how do they get hold of us how do they it's not through pizza based means is it well unless you want to ask the pizza guy to write a turtle on there with a message then no it's not you can get in contact with us through facebook at facebook.com forward slash two crew dudes at twitter at two crew dudes on google plus which is unfortunately because coming defunct soon is two crew dudes but if you do want to drop us an email it is two crew dudes at gmail.com we are on apple Podcasts, we are on soundcloud podbean if you want to leave us a comment a like a share that would be greatly appreciated speaking of making us feel good we've just made you feel good through your ears because you heard this so thank you for listening and we'll see you next time for part two the conclusion of the turtles in that right pete yeah Yes, <laughs> coming next week. Thank you.